Welcome to The Partial Historians. We explore all the details of ancient Rome. Everything from the political scandals, the love affairs, the battles waged, and when citizens turn against each other. I'm Dr. Rad. And I'm Dr. G. We consider Rome as the Romans saw it, by reading different authors from the ancient past and comparing their stories. Join us as we trace the journey of Rome from the founding of the city. Welcome to a special episode of The Partial Historians. I am one of your hosts, Dr. Rad. And I am a somewhat healthy Dr. G. I know, this is true dedication. Patreons, Dr. G has been suffering from the vid. I've been on my deathbed, uh, but I've bounced back. Thank (laughs) goodness. It was Rome that called you forth and said, live. Live another day. (laughs) And one must always follow the commands of Rome. And here I am, stalwart as ever. (laughs) Well, I suppose luckily or unluckily, I'm not sure, we're not doing our normal narrative today, but instead we're taking a journey into Hollywood land, which could be good for a sick person or maybe not. (laughs) (laughs) I Look, I think it's going to be, it's going to be good. I'm excited for this. Golden era Hollywood is one of my favorite times in Hollywood. <laughs> we all love it. We all adore it. So let's get into this special episode where we get to talk all about The Robe, Gallio. A fine specimen of a young Roman, if I ever saw one. Indeed. And then we have my favourite, Jean Simmons, playing the lead female part, Diana. I think she's actually really good in this role. Yeah, well, you know, she's got that pure beauty about her. She looks very innocent. She does. Yeah. And then, of course, we've got the hero of our Patreon bonus episode, Demetrius and the Gladiators, because, of course, being a sequel, he's in this one too. Victor Mature playing Demetrius. And he does look mature, doesn't he? (laughs) He does have a mature look about him, but lest we forget, he retired at 44, so I guess he was in his 30s at this point in time. Oh, wow. (laughs) Yeah. And then we have Michael Rennie playing St. Peter. Yeah, I feel like that was a bit of a 
that's a bit of a throw into the sequel as well, isn't it? I believe so. I think he was in both. Yeah, definitely. I mean, they knew they were filming both when they started, as I discovered last time. And then we have Jay Robinson playing Caligula. Mm, yeah, we'll come back to that one. Yeah. And they're, I think, the main ones that we have to deal with. They're our major characters. Yeah, I think that kind of covers it. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. So The Robe 1953 is a big film in many ways. Not only is it an epic from the age of epics, the golden age of Hollywood epics, but it also has won some fame for some of the other milestones that are associated with this film. Now, just to give us an idea of exactly how big a smash it was, it cost a smidgen over $4 million to make. And it took, yeah, it took in $17 million in the USA market and $36 million worldwide. Okay, so this was a profit-making engine. (laughs) Well, yeah. I mean, it has a sequel. That's got to tell us something. (laughs) Built in, apparently, as well. So there you go. (laughs) I do like this detail, though, that some of the ticket sales would have been to teachers who were pressed into going to see this movie for their students or with their students, maybe. Yeah, goodness. I mean, that kind of made up the bulk of the sales, surely. (laughs) (laughs) Anyway, so let's talk a little bit about this epic Dr. G. So what were your initial impressions? I'm dying to know. Oh, look, I think longtime listeners of this show will be well aware that I tend to classify myself as a pagan and my position has not changed uh, (laughs) as a result of watching The Robe. It did feel like very much that they were utilising Roman history as a vehicle for getting to the Christian story. Mm. And I'm not a fan of that, to be honest. Um, Christianity is not huge uh, in this initial phase. Like this is set sort of right at the moment of the passing of the Messiah. I was going to say, Jesus is alive in this film. I mean, that tells us something. Yeah, (laughs) Jesus starts alive in this film. He doesn't stay alive. Um, So that gives us almost everything we need to know about what moment in history we're in. But the sense in which there is a a really strong Christianizing moment that comes over all of the players who've been closely associated with that moment of Jesus's death is really interesting. Yeah. And I would say anachronistic. For sure. I mean... It's historically accurate to place Jesus's life in this time period. So the time period we're talking about is the tail end of the reign of Tiberius, a.k.a. the best period ever. And we then end up going into some of Caligula's reign as well. And Caligula's definitely around this whole movie. <laughs> He's not, uh, you know, off to the side and Tiberius is a star. Caligula, I think, is definitely the main Roman imperial character that we get to know over the course of this film. And that is historical. As far as we can tell, Jesus was indeed around in the latter half of Tiberius's reign. So anyway, the, the general setting for Jesus's lifetime and when he starts to become a problem for Rome all is accurate. And so we've got our major players, you know, being where they should be. But as you say, this is a classic Hollywood epic in that 
in order for you to have a good guy and a bad guy, you know, someone to root for and someone to despise whilst enjoying the things that they get up to, it's pretty normal for Hollywood to go to a Christians versus Romans storyline, or at least Christians slash Jewish people, question mark, versus Romans. Yeah, and, yeah. and this leads us into some like really interesting directorial choices or maybe casting decisions as well because the Romans quintessentially played by the English so they've got that very sort of RP accent going on yes but then the people of Palestine appear to be American weird I mean it's something but I think that that actually does keep into the whole accent divide because I think it's kind of meant to be the people who are on the side that you're meant to be rooting for are generally American. Hmm. So Hollywood would want you to believe. Yeah, yeah. I mean, like, it's not uh, it's not uncommon for the movies of this era to have that accent divide so that it's super clear, just in case you were thinking of rooting for the Romans that were crucifying Jesus, just in case you had a moment where you thought, maybe I'm on their side. They go for the accent just to make it very clear. That and uh, the way that they decide to portray particular Romans. Now, Caligula, as we know, doesn't have heaps of redeeming features ultimately. And the Romans themselves get pretty jack of him very quickly. They do. So this is what what is about to follow is not the saving of Caligula. No. Uh, when I say I think he might have been overplayed a little bit. <laughs> in this film. Although I have to admit, though, I kind of enjoy the guy who played him. He does have a the kind of voice that really grates on you in a way that makes you think, yeah, I could assassinate this guy after a few years. I think I'd be annoyed enough. He is frustratingly inept uh, in his presentation. Mm. And because we don't get a good read on motivation from Caligula, and because it just feels like he's being played for the sort of the hysterical, maniacal power-driven figure um, that he's portrayed as in this film, it makes him feel a little bit unbelievable mm. whilst also holding down the position as the bad guy. Yeah, fair enough. Well, before we get too much further into Caligula, we probably should say something about the general storyline of this film. So why don't you tell us about the the story, Dr. G? Okay. All right. Well, I mean, it starts off great. Opening scene, it, it seems like we're in the Roman Forum. Everyone's having a good time. It's clearly slave buying season. Uh, not that anybody should be excited about that. I was uh, going to say, when is it not slave buying season in Rome? It seems to be a particularly busy time at the moment. <laughs> and this sets up the a few really important dynamics. It allows us to see... Marcellus re-meeting his childhood sweetheart, Diana. They haven't seen each other for many years, so that sets up that relationship. We learn about Diana's connection as a ward of Tiberius to Caligula, potentially as a love interest for him. But we also learn about Marcellus's uh, ongoing tension with Caligula as well. Apparently those two don't get along. And then we have this sort of moment with the slave market, which introduces us to Demetrius mm. as well, who is perhaps the most stoic character in this whole Oh, film. my God, yes. Yeah. <laughs> so stoic. And this guy kind of just accepts his fate as it is. 
doesn't seem to fight one way or the other, but does seem to be motivated by an internal set of principles. And for whatever reason, Demetrius ends up coming to the attention of both Marcellus and Caligula during this slave sale. And this becomes an important point because it's this moment and this tension between Marcellus and Caligula, which turns Demetrius's fate. So he technically gets freed in this slave auction through being purchased at such a high price for Marcellus to sort of jab Caligula a little bit. Mm. But because Demetrius feels that this isn't appropriate to being bought at such a high price just to be set free, he decides to become the manservant of Marcellus anyway. So these two are now bound up together in what appears to be a kind of odd duo because Marcellus then goes on to be like, let's be friends. If we're going to hang out together like this, Demetrius is like, we are not friends. (laughs) I nearly owe you. (laughs) It's different. (laughs) I do like the pairing though. I mean, Burton's got the voice and Mature's got the shoulders. (laughs) Yeah. So these two end up on adventures together, which are all bound up with Caligula in particular ways. Caligula is annoyed at Marcellus for this whole debacle in the slave market. So he sends him to Palestine as a bit of a punishment while he's there. He ends up in a situation with Pontius Pilate. So that's good news. Everybody likes it when Pontius Pilate enters the, enters the scene. Mm. Pontius Pilate sort of commands Marcellus to be in charge of the crucifixion of Jesus, which is awkward but also at the same time has a Lady Macbeth moment, which is kind of beautiful where he's washing his hands and he's like, I need to wash my hands. And his slaves are like, you just wash your hands. And you're you're like, the blood's invisible, but he's having trouble, guys. (laughs) He's ordered the death of Jesus. Then we have some really interesting moments in Palestine, one of which is this trading of the robe. Mm. So... I mean, pivotal to this entire film, it would seem, is that we don't see Jesus very much. We don't really see his face. Uh, we sometimes hear his voice, but we he's a mysterious figure who seems to have an effect on Demetrius straight away. When he is on the cross, the robe that he had been wearing has been laid at the bottom of it. One of the Roman soldiers picks it up and is like, ah, we could throw this into the old uh, gambling table. <laughs> Uh, Let's win the robe of Jesus. And Marcellus wins it, but is then sort of overcome when he tries to put it on himself when it's raining and he wants to protect himself. It seems like it has a huge negative effect on him, like almost like it burns his skin or something. Anyway, it's, it's horrifying to him. And Demetrius just wanders off with the robe in the end. It's like, I'll take that. And but but he does have that amazing scene because there's all, all that storm happening around them. And I must admit, I think this is probably one of Victor Mature's finest moments on screen where he sort of screams in Richard Burton's face as he's, you know, dealing with the effects of the robe and all of that kind of stuff. And he does that whole murderers, thieves, jungle animals. Masters of the world, you call yourselves. A curse on you. A curse on your empire. <laughs> Lightning strikes in the background and this thunder. Yeah, it's very it is intense. Great. It is great. Yeah. The evil laughter was my addition, I should say. <laughs> yeah. Very intense moment. And yeah. Demetrius ends up walking off with the robe 
uh, completely unharmed by it because clearly it's there's a connection between his faith and uh, one's capacity to hold this garment, sacred as it is. Uh, Marcellus ends up back in Rome and seeing Tiberius on the Isle of Capri being like, what do I do? I've got this madness. And the Romans, in their wisdom, decide that the robe must be cursed, which is, for the Romans, an excellent choice, really. (laughs) It's like that would explain it. So Marcellus is given an imperial commission to destroy this robe. And it's like, use whatever means you need to. Um, so this is great. God knows how many people might have tried it on by now. <laughs> yeah, it's a disaster. We've got to find it as soon as possible. Exactly. If anybody finds out about this garment, it's going to be a pure nightmare. <laughs> That's basically what Tiberius says when uh, when everybody yeah. leaves. And he's like, this is the worst thing that has ever happened in my entire rule. <laughs> and I've had some stuff happen. <laughs> <laughs> we must deal with this instantly. Yeah. I mean, my brother died. Uh, I had to divorce the wife that I loved. I then had to marry a woman I hated. The child that we had died. Then both my natural son and my adopted son both died. That was pretty bad. But this this robe, this, this robe. takes the cake. Yeah. <laughs> it is up there. Yeah. <laughs> so Marcellus finds himself back in Palestine because that's where he last saw Demetrius with the robe. And he's like, well, I've got to go back to the source to look for more clues. <laughs> and this leads to a whole bunch of unfoldings. There's storytellings. There's this slow journey of Marcellus from like quintessential Roman to like uh, somebody embodied in faith. Very dedicated Christian. Very dedicated across this journey. Yeah. Um, He meets some villagers who really shift his perspective on things. He finds Demetrius again and all of this sort of uh, nourishes his flourishing belief. So by the time he does get back to Rome, he's now committed to the cause and he also hasn't told anybody that he's back for ages as well. So, well, so, no, he's got he's got new friends now, the Christians, and Sir Peter. Yeah, and yeah. you know when Diana finds out about this because she's been waiting for him this whole time, of that, course, that he's hidden uh, his return from her. She's not happy about that, and she, she is de- not. She demands to be taken to him, and that's when we find out that the Christians are living in the catacombs. Yes, which. Which is awkward because they should not really exist yet. <laughs> minor details, minor details. Yeah. Look, I was I was all fine for them to just be underground caves. Like Rome is literally riddled with natural springs and cave systems anyway. Yeah. That's completely completely fine and legitimate. But they do refer to them as catacombs. And I was like, guys, you know that people would have had to be buried in them for them to be catacombs. And the people that we know are buried in the catacombs are Christians. <laughs> and you guys are the first Christians in Rome. So Pishosh, there's been a lot of persecution already. <laughs> so much, so much persecution already. Anyway, as it turns out, one of the things... It's getting more complicated as the film goes on, but Demetrius has been captured and the Christians have to save him. Because he's been tortured for information. Yeah. 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 And Caligula has Demetrius in his grasp. Yeah. And is uh, turning the screw, as it were. Mm. So the Christians all gather together and they manage to pull off a, a very effective saving of Demetrius. And they hide him, weirdly, at Marcellus's dad's house. Yeah, although I was going to say it's I like the I like the infiltration because they they use Marcellus as a mole. 
you know, he's got the clothes, he's got the accent, he can penetrate into the palace itself in order to rescue Demetrius, which I did appreciate. (laughs) Although it is a concern to me that throughout this entire film, Marcellus has been known consistently as the Tribune. So he's pretty low down on the Cursus Sonorum, and he's definitely not progressing any higher up the Cursus Sonorum (laughs) after this film. But the thing is that I feel like given the nature of the events, we've had two trips to Palestine... (laughs) at least, in the course of this film, that we are looking at over a year. Oh, it's way more than that. In terms of time. Yeah. And as a magistrate holding the tribunitianship, it seems very unlikely that Marcellus would continue to be tribune over the whole course of this film, or that given the way that he's behaved, that people would continue to recognise him as tribune. Yeah, I definitely think it's meant to be more than a year for sure. But do we think that he is tribune of the plebs or just a military tribune? That I don't know. I, I feel like I've, I kind of figured he was like a military tribune. Well, that is an unfortunate place for the son of a senator to have ended up in terms of his career. <laughs> I could be wrong, but because they, they never really clarify that. But they yeah. don't. They don't. And he continues to be tribune throughout the whole That's thing. That's true. Yeah, that is true. I, I think they do use that more than his actual name. Tribune, come over here. Tribune, I'm having some trouble. You, sir. Tribune, I want you to do the crucifixions today. (laughs) I'm bored. (laughs) Yeah. So our final scene, ultimately, the plot uh, leads us to this moment where it's the ultimate showdown between Caligula and Marcellus. Yes, because he's been captured. He ends up getting captured when he's trying to get everybody safely, well, out of Rome. I think they're going out of Rome. Yeah, he's trying to get Demetrius safely out of Rome. Yeah. And in the course of that, they're being run down by some cavalry and Marcellus chooses to sacrifice himself so that his friend can get away. Absolutely. It's never really been clarified that they are friends now, but one assumes over the course of the travails that they've encountered that they now like each other. I think they do, yeah. I think so. Yeah. This means that there is a huge public trial. Marcellus's parents are there. All of the elite of Rome are there. Yeah, all of them. It's a massive crowd. (laughs) It's a huge crowd. So many people. Caligula comes in in what is the reddest garment that has ever been seen on film. (laughs) Ah, the the marvels of Technicolor, Dr. G. It's incredible. Mm. Everybody else looks pale and washed out in comparison. (laughs) But Caligula, oh boy, that is some imperial red that he's got on. (laughs) This leads into a whole sort of three-way sort of struggle between Diana, Marcellus, and Caligula verbally duking it out, essentially. Actually, we should perhaps mention that Diana was meant to marry Caligula for a little while there. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It's a triangle, all right. It's a triangle. And... She certainly makes it clear where she stands to Caligula to the point that he changes his mind about being unwilling to punish her to her definitely having to die. Yeah, well, I mean, it's a no-brainer, really. I mean, when you're choosing between Richard Burton's sultry tones and those of Jay Robinson, I mean, can you imagine that in the bedroom? Diana! Oh, Diana! (laughs) <laughs> I mean, it, it's quite something uh, I mean I hope he's got an indoor voice 
Just whisper to me, Caligula. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, so basically Caligula's like, you know what? You guys believe so much in this afterlife and this kingdom of heaven and being saved. No big deal if I execute the both of you. And so they march off quite happily, just trip off into the clouds. Yeah, it's a, the way this film ends is a little bit surprising. I felt like after two and a quarter hours of viewing time, <laughs> I was not expecting the end scene to be a gentle walk by Marcellus and Diana out of the trial into heaven. <laughs> I know, I know. But I guess I guess because they knew the sequel was coming, mm. that maybe they felt that that was okay. And look, you know, it's kind of an un-Hollywood ending. I mean, it's a happy ending, but it's not your typical Hollywood ending, I suppose. Yeah, they do get to stay together forever in love, I suppose. That's well, cute. there's that. But I mean... I think if you were going for a real Hollywood ending, that somehow they would both survive and Gallio would become the emperor or something like that. And also maybe the Pope. <laughs> yeah, look at, I mean, if you're going to rewrite history, I mean, lean in, guys. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So that's the rough storyline, which, as you can tell by the fact that it took us 13 minutes to tell you the story. But you know what? We're saving you from watching a two and a quarter hour movie. So, Although if you want to, it could be fun. <laughs> Oh, I'm not saying you shouldn't watch it, but, you know, 13 minutes on two and a quarter hours, it's not too bad. So let's maybe talk about where this movie came from, Dr. G. Mm. So whilst Hollywood does love a Christians slash Jewish people versus Romans storyline, it did not come out of thin air. It is, of course, based on a book. Of course. Yeah. So it was actually written by a guy called Lloyd C. Douglas, and he was the son of an Indiana pastor, and he became a Lutheran minister himself before moving over to the Congregational Church for his career. Mm. But he started writing as we got into the, like the late 1920s. He started writing. He wrote this book called Magnificent Obsession, and it sold three million copies. Oh, my goodness. Yeah. And so by 1933, he was like, you know what? I don't think I need to be a minister anymore. I think I'm going to be a novelist. I've got a winning formula and all I need to do is write more books. Yeah, he honestly became one of the most popular novelists in America in this time period. And this is not, The Robe is not the only one of his books that was adapted into a film. So oh, well, well, well. They're, they're, not, they're, not only, they're not only popular in terms of people reading them, they are popular in terms of being picked up and made into Hollywood films. So The Robe had been a bestseller from 1942 until 1945. Wow. Okay. Yeah. It was on the bestseller list for years. Yeah, absolutely. I presume that publication was maybe slightly slower for like the big novels. I know there were dime novels and stuff out, you know, in the 1950s that people could buy and they were churned out very quickly. But I feel like it is a slightly less crowded market perhaps at this point in time. It's a very interesting time for the novel to come out as well. Like you're in the middle of the Second World War. Yeah, you are indeed. So it was eventually bought by RKO. However, they didn't really act on it. They just sort of bought the rights to it. And, you know, by the late 1940s, it's still something that they're just sort of sitting on. At, the, at that point in time, Howard Hughes is in charge of RKO. Biblical films were not really his thing. He wasn't 
as into them as other people seem to have been at the time. Sounds like Howard Hughes and I might get along. <laughs> yeah, exactly, yeah. But eventually, Daryl Zanuck and Fox Studios step in. And this is how the film finally kind of gets off the ground and gets made. So that's just sort of a little bit of background to the film. But as a result, and not to be honest, this is pretty common for Hollywood movies of this time. There are a number of people who ended up working on the script for the film because it has such a long production process. But even with the ones that were shorter, it was pretty common to have more than one person, you know, take a look at the script and give their input and that sort of thing. When the film was finally made, it definitely got a huge publicity campaign. So we're talking radio ads, we're talking television, we're talking newspapers. Everywhere you looked, there's an ad for The Robe. Have you seen Cinemascope? (laughs) (laughs) Nobody has. It's the first one to have it. So, of course, it's going to be debuting this new widescreen format, which the studios are hoping is going to... Keep people coming to the movies rather than sitting at home and watching their televisions, which, of course, are becoming a big thing in this post-World War II era. And so they make the films bigger, more colourful, more extravagant, the kinds of thing that television, which is generally a little square black and white box, just can't really offer. You know, we're talking about also sound, you know, stereophonic sound. It's, it's all a big thing. And it's given this huge premiere where it's like a freaking circus. We're talking about, you know, the spotlights outside the cinema, the stars are attending, you know, it's it's a very, very big deal. (laughs) There's gladiators playing games. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, Yeah. so it's definitely a huge to-do when it comes out. So as you highlighted, when this novel was first written and people were maybe first toying with the idea of making this film it was a world war ii time and that seems to have been thought to be part of the message of the film when they were first you know throwing it around that in some way caligula and rome are meant to be this sort of you know decadent place that they're somehow the way that they're treating jewish people slash christians because of the crossover (laughs) It's kind of meant to be like the persecutions that were carried out, in particular, I suppose, by Hitler, but also to some extent by Mussolini. So this was definitely meant to be something that people were, I think, picking up on when they were first, you know, developing this into a film. Look, I think that sounds reasonable. Yeah. Yeah, you do get the sense that the way that the Romans are being positioned in this film is quite particular and... It's quite different from other epics of this era that I've watched so far because I'm not going to pretend that I'm conversant in all the Hollywood epics. But there You've is... watched quite a few now. I have watched a few, but yeah. I, I wouldn't say I'm in any way an expert at this point in time. But it did feel to me like the Romans were being very much positioned in a particular way. And yeah. it was in part to do with... Obviously, the focus is on the Christian story. So the Romans are by default the bad guys here. But also that it's coming out of that sort of post-Second War mindset. Well, how do we understand conflict? How do we understand the persecution of peoples? 
And so while I wasn't really consciously thinking about it when I watched it, the vibe that the Romans are giving off in this film is intriguing. Yeah, and I think it's kind of one of those things as well where with these sorts of moralizing films, it's kind of that thing of people get to enjoy watching the Romans have this very fancy schmancy life that they have whilst also being like, oh, isn't it terrible? Look at what they're doing to those poor Christians. Um, So it's like they, because the moral is there, they get to enjoy watching the decadence of Rome. But I didn't feel like it was as over the top in the robe as it has been in some of the other movies we've watched, like Quo Vadis and that sort of thing. And I feel like the decadence was actually a little bit paired back in this film as well. Like, not that it didn't have like all of the highly colored interior scenes and the layering of different stones and things like that. It was obviously trying to be quite opulent in its way, but it it also felt like maybe they didn't have quite as much budget as some other films for some of that stuff. Yeah, definitely. Now, the other interesting thing I'm going to throw in contextually, Dr. G, is that so when this film was purchased and when it was being made, we're still in the time of the studio system. So this is a period where you've got kind of like five major movie studios that really dominate the production of movies in Hollywood. There are some minor studios and then there are also some truly budget, you know, just pump out these really crappy movie studios. They do exist, but the major films, particularly the ones that most people would be familiar with today, they're going to be made by one of these major studios. And it's kind of that idea of it being like the dream factory time of Hollywood, you know, where they're manufacturing movies. And so they're in charge of who gets hired to be director, who's the producer, who's on contract, like the stars are all under contract to various studios and they have to make so many pictures per year and they get paid this much to do it and all that kind of stuff. So a huge amount of control. Now, most of these Hollywood studios, these major ones, are owned by Jewish movie moguls. This puts them, I suppose, in an interesting position in the 20th century. Now, of course, I think part of the reason why that ended up being the case is that typically when when movies first sort of became a thing, it wasn't necessarily the most uh, admired or respectable profession to be involved in. You know, I mean, it wasn't the theatre. In the same way that actors in ancient Rome were suffering under the pall of a lack of respect for their craft. Exactly. So too did early filmmakers. People like, that's not art. Exactly. Yeah, and I think it's... So it's, it's something that you do tend to get people that perhaps aren't risking a wider reputation, I suppose, or aren't too concerned about what this wider society may or may not think. We're also talking about people who are potentially immigrants, you know. Uh, there's, there's a whole bunch of reasons why you might end up getting maybe a higher percentage of Jewish people getting involved in the film industry in the early days. And their investment, of course, really pays off because everyone starts to really fall in love with movies, which makes which makes the people that got involved in the early film industry very wealthy when they rise to the top. Now, it's not by any means only Jewish people that are involved, but there, there is a trend where a lot of the big movie moguls at the studios are Jewish people. Now, they don't want to be seen to be putting pro-Jewish propaganda into their films or things like that. Particularly once we get into this time period that we're talking about, you know, with obviously World War II. I mean, even, I mean, obviously we, we 
we talk about American history, obviously, there's always been, I think, a, a certain stigma against anybody who's perceived to be an outsider. But particularly in the early 20th century, we know that we see a spike in terms of racism, not just directed against African-American groups, but also directed against any immigrant groups. And Jewish people in the 1930s are increasingly being associated, well, in the 1920s and the 1930s, really, they're increasingly being associated with communism. So, <laughs> especially with everything that's happened with World War II, especially, it's not really a great time, I suppose, um, to be seen, to be putting out films that are openly you know, pro the Jewish cause. 19, and 1948, I think, makes that a particularly tetchy issue because, of course, this is when we get the creation of the state of Israel. So with the creation of the state of Israel, there was actually a film released that was touching on these sorts of issues and was kind of pro-Israel called The Sword in the Desert. But there was a riot that broke out in a London cinema when it was shown. And so it was actually withdrawn. So I think that showed a, a message of, you know, people aren't really going to want to see these sorts of films, or at least that's the feeling. And obviously, we're talking about Hollywood. It's a business. You've got to, you know, make your money somehow. So a way, I suppose, of dealing with that was by making biblical epics where there is a bit of a focus on, say, the Old Testament. So we do see a lot of Jewish heroes turning up in some of these 1950s epics. Another one, of course, played by Victor Mature, Samson, Samson and Delilah. And then, of course, we've got Moses turning up in the Ten Commandments. Um, and then you've got characters like Joshua, Solomon, and even in terms of women, you've got people like Ruth and Esther turning up in some of these biblical epics. So the robe is kind of an interesting one because it is obviously crossing that that line between Old Testament days and entering the New Testament led by one Jesus Christ. Yeah, we're in this very interesting storyline, uh, I suspect. And it doesn't necessarily, I don't think it's overt in this film, but it's clear as well that this is about the genesis of Christianity. Mm. And and it emerges out of Palestinian culture. That's clear both from the geographic location and it's clear from the way in which the robe engages with this story as well. Like Marcellus goes on this journey, which involves him going into Palestine as part of his job as a Roman, but also mm. learning and discovering things about himself while he's there. Yeah. And for him, that's not necessarily about Jesus in the beginning. It's a much longer journey. And so I think part of what this film is trying to do is to try to capture what does this historical moment really mean? For, so that sense in which we know that there are people in Palestine during this time period historically who are being crucified. And what kind of effect does that have on the people who are there at the time? And what kind of stories are they telling about these people? Because one of these stories ends up becoming very influential and being retold and retold. So this is an interesting way to tackle it, I think, through the eyes of somebody who is Roman mm. and also through the eyes of somebody who is not Roman but is also an outsider. Yeah, it, it is a really interesting film in that respect. And I think also the choice of having it, I mean, obviously they had to place it when they did if they were going to be accurate about when Jesus was supposedly alive and when he was being crucified. But 
I think there is also a tendency to set these sorts of movies during the empire, not just because historically it makes sense, but also because the Republican era of Rome had been such a model for the USA itself. And they like to think of themselves as, you know, inheriting some of those Republican Roman values. So a way of, I suppose, dealing with the fact that they're like, we're like the Romans. They're like, oh, wait a second. Not those Romans. Yeah, we're like the Republican Romans, not those decadent imperial Romans, not the USA. (laughs) I mean, they're very lucky in that regard that the timeline is what it is, because imagine if this had happened in the Republic and it very well could have because <laughs> oh, their heads it, would literally explode. <laughs> we are we are not that far into the Imperial period. Guys. No, we're not. No, we're not. <laughs> now, of course, so there, there were some minor contextual factors. So the rivalry from television, we've got the studio system and the people that are behind the studio system. Follow the money, Dr. G. Well, yeah, like I hear Gene Simmons had to like, break contract and get a different contract in order to partly to be in this film that's generally what they had to do there's always sorts of like they, it was it was almost as though the celebrities were like trading cards <laughs> and you know studios would be like look i really want so and so from this picture they'd be just right for the role what can you do i'll trade you these two women for that woman for six months <laughs> or or yeah they, or they had to renegotiate their contracts because often their contracts would be like for seven years. So it's quite a substantial chunk of time. But anyway, so we've got television, we've got the studio system, we've got the creation of Israel whilst this film is very slowly being developed. And then, of course, the big thing that we need to talk about is the Red Scare of the 1950s. Dun, dun, dun. Thank you. Thank you. I needed a sound effect. <laughs> so by the time the robe is finally like properly in production, which is by the early 1950s, we're looking at a second round of HUAC hearings, which is the House of Un-American Activities Committee. And these are the people that are most notorious for trying to root out communists in various industries in America, but in particular in Hollywood. And I say in particular in that it was probably obviously the most widely publicized. (laughs) Yeah, it's a horrifying time to be of the progressive political nature. Yes. So there's been a lot of talk about the robe and the HUAC hearings, because, of course, there are some key scenes in the robe, which some people have taken to mean that this film was trying to talk about the present happenings in America whilst ostensibly talking about the past. I'm wondering if you can guess which scenes I'm talking about, Dr. G. I don't know that I can. I didn't have this moment where I was like, aha, that's a clear HUAC moment. Uh, I had moments where I was like, this is another Lady Macbeth reference. (laughs) (laughs) Look, very possibly. possibly. Uh, Maybe they're the same. Look, there is this scene on the ship back to Italy where Marcellus seems to be involuntarily moaning a bit like a lady while he's asleep as there is the sound of the hammer on the deck of the ship. Could this be a hammer and sickle reference that I've missed? (laughs) Could this, could this be a recollection of his role in the crucifixion where the sound of the hammer reminds him of the, of the nails that he drilled into Jesus's body. Anyway, I don't know, but uh, that was a great scene. Well, basically, it is the scene where Tiberius is talking to Marcellus 
the Tribune about finding out about the robe, like tracking it down, you know, rooting out all the Christians, all of that kind of stuff. So he explicitly says to Marcellus, you know, I, I need a list of names, every name. I need to know who these people are. We need to hunt them down. We need to root them out. So that has sometimes been seen as a not very subtle reference to what HUAC was trying to do in the late 1940s and in the early 1950s, because this film, of course, came out in 1953. So it was out after two rounds of Hollywood hearings of the, uh, of the committee. So some people have seen that as being a reference. But I did find this article which delved into the complicated production of this film. And part of, I think, the reason why people were so keen to see a parallel is that the major screenwriter during the early days of production for The Robe was Albert Maltz. Now, Albert Maltz is a name I know very well because he was one of the Hollywood 10. So he's one of the original guys that ends up getting called up in 1947 before HUAC, along with another guy I know, Dalton Trumbo. He and Trumbo are pretty tight. <laughs> of course they are. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah. And then the next guy to work on the script is a guy called Philip Dunn. Now, he ended up being part of a group of people in Hollywood called the Committee for the First Amendment. So this is a reference to the fact that when the HUAC hearing started to happen in 1947, quite a lot of the more liberal people in Hollywood were, of course, horrified by what was happening. These are people that they know. These are people that they've worked with. And they perhaps were just liberal enough to not think that this was actually something that should be happening in America. So a bunch of them get together to try and rally support for the Hollywood 10. And they end up calling themselves the Committee for the First Amendment because one of the decisions, one of the key decisions that the Hollywood 10 had decided to make in 1947 is that they were going to plead the First Amendment and not the Fifth. Okay, so they're not they're not pleading. Now you're really testing my understanding of uh, the U.S. Constitution because I do not know what the First Amendment stands for at all. Basically, <laughs> we're talking about the Fifth Amendment is your right to not incriminate yourself, which tends to be what happens later on in the HUAC hearings because the First Amendment doesn't work. The First Amendment, we're talking about things like your freedom of speech. Okay, your, your basic freedoms, like some of the things that Americans cling to most dearly. I see. And they basically say that they, they want to do that rather than pleading the fifth when they get called up in front of this committee because to plead the fifth kind of has the connotation, I suppose, that you have done something criminal. I was going to say, <laughs> surely pleading the fifth is already an implication of guilt. Kind of. I mean, like, it, it, it's not really... That's not really what it necessarily means, but it does have that connotation, whereas the First Amendment is more about fundamental freedom. Like if you're at risk of incriminating yourself, doesn't that make you a criminal? <laughs> well, I mean, this is the thing. No, it doesn't have to. It's more just the fact that obviously you have the right not to incriminate yourself, maybe accidentally, but it does. It just has that connotation. So, yeah. Um, so that's why it became a big thing because they took that stand that they were going to plead the First Amendment and argue this and it does not go well for them. FYI, yeah. 
Oh, yeah, that's a but shame. Anyway, he'd been one of the he he was a, he was known to be a political liberal, and he was one of the founding members of this group, which also included some very well known names like you know Lauren Bacall, Humphrey Bogart, you know lots of people who would do you know radio announcements telling people, look, this is what is happening right now. This is terrifying. We need to do something about it. We need to rally and show support. So. There's definitely some leftist feelings coming out of the screenwriting room. There's just a slight catch, Dr. G. Uh-oh. Albert Maltz was writing The Robe up until about 1946. I wonder if you can do some mm. quick math for me and tell me what the problem is with that. Well, it's after the Second World War and before <laughs> the HUAC hearings. I don't know. That's exactly right. It's before the HUAC hearings. So how could he be making a coded reference to the HUAC hearings before the HUAC hearings? I mean, the guy's got foresight. <laughs> <laughs> what can I say? He's a smart man and he saw it coming. Yeah. So whilst there's obviously potential for there to be some anti-fascist stuff that, yeah, that Albert Maltz has sort of worked into the script, um, you know, in, in terms of what everyone's just been going through with World War II, it seems unlikely that Albert Maltz would have been able to work in HUAC references before the HUAC hearings that became a problem for him in 1947. You do make a very sound argument, and I am convinced. <laughs> Look, I would like to claim this as my own, but somebody else went into the archives and figured this out. Um, however, that still leaves the question of Philip Dunn. Okay. Yes. Sinister. <laughs> well, not necessarily. I mean, I actually quite like the sound of him. He sounds like our kind of guy. <laughs> Philip is done. That's what I'm telling oh, right. you. <laughs> I suppose... There are also there are also supposed potential references to kind of like blacklisting and Caligula being a somewhat McCarthy-like figure, particularly in that last big scene that you talked about. Okay, the way that he talks about the way he's talking to Gallio in that final showdown of a scene. Also, the way he has plants in the audience to back up his position. Oh yeah, which which aren't enough to get it across the line anyway, which is kind of hilarious because you think as the emperor he'd be able to buy off more people. But he's then also immediately called out for this by Diana being like, that's all you got, the people you planted in the crowd. (laughs) (laughs) I know, she's very outspoken. I love the fact that in both Demetrius and the Gladiator and, sorry, Demetrius and the Gladiators and the robe, we have these final scenes where Roman women are super outspoken in a public forum. Yeah. In a way that I think would not fly in reality. <laughs> no, just laying into them. Yeah. But I think the thing that really came through for me when I was re-watching it is that Marcellus is very clear to Caligula that, look, this is just what I believe. I'm not trying to take down Rome. You know, I can I can be loyal to both of you, which I think is very interesting because that's kind of the line that a lot of people who were brought up before the HUAC committee in the 1940s and the 1950s were trying to argue. The majority of them, I mean, particularly those who worked in Hollywood, sure, I'm sure there are some rogue communists out there in the States who were aiming higher. But in terms of the Hollywood people, they weren't trying to take over the state. And this is also, I think, tapping into some bigger ideas that I think America at this time had about itself. And maybe these ideas linger today in various ways. 
which is when Marcellus makes this dichotomy between his ability to serve Rome, which is completely uncompromised in his perspective, and his personal interest in pursuing his beliefs uh, to the extent to which they don't affect his capacity to serve Rome Mm. is tapping into that idea of freedom of religion and also this vaunted but potentially quite false idea of the separation of religion and state, uh, which is a very modern invention. And uh, once you look into any state system, almost completely unsupported by the evidence at play on the ground in any nation state of today. Yeah, definitely. Now, one of the interesting things is that we do actually have a record of Maltz's version of the script, which Philip Dunn would have used to develop his idea. And Maltz definitely had more scenes that developed this idea of the need for the naming of names. And it also included a bit more development with the character of Abidor. Now, Abidor is the informant that Marcellus uses to try and find out about the Christian, well, the Jewish slash Christian community that he's tracking down. So in Maltz's version, Marcellus actually gives Abidor a coin in exchange for every name that is brought to him. These these were not kept, obviously, in Dunn's version, which begs the question, was it purely because this was already an incredibly long film? Or was it that by the time that Dunn was working on the script, those sorts of references might have been seen as maybe too problematic? Maybe unseemly, given the circumstances that we're facing right now in Hollywood. Let's not mention that too much. (laughs) Exactly. Yeah. Um, Because it is no doubt that Philip Dunn was somebody who was anti-HUAC. But the thing is, he was also anti-communist. So the people that were part of this committee for the First Amendment, they weren't necessarily communists themselves. In fact, I would say that generally they were not communists at all. They were just people who thought that HUAC was wrong and thought it was important to speak out against the freedoms that were, to speak out because they were basic American freedoms that were being trampled on. And also because I presume, again, because of that natural affinity for people that you knew and people that you worked with being, you know, put in this horrible situation. Yeah, look, and I I think that's completely fair. You always want to stick up for your friends. Yeah. So, I mean, I guess it's like one of those movies that in a way you can kind of read it however you like in that you can see it as being a critique of totalitarianism. Okay. It could be seen as, you know, you could see Caligula and the Romans as being kind of Stalinist communist figures and that you're living in a repressive state. Or you can read it as being, I suppose, a critique of the kind of repression that was going on during the HUAC era. I think it it offers itself to a range of these sorts of interpretations. And the importance of the positioning of the audience in this uh, to very much be on the side of Marcellus and that unfolding personal journey uh, to understanding is part of the key way that it's navigating all of these tensions. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. So overall, Dr. G, after after us talking all about all these various contextual issues for the making of The Robe, what is your final impression of this film? <laughs> uh, oh, look, 
I don't want to see it again. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Ouch. I know. I like my Roman history to just be a little bit more grandiose. I, I don't know that I'm into it as being a backdrop for some other sort of moral didacticism, which it feels very strongly as what's going on here. I did enjoy the elder Tiberius. He seemed like the most reasonable guy around traps in this Definitely. film. Yeah. Although I, I must admit, I thought you would pick up on this. Did you pick up on the fact that Tiberius was very skeptical about Roman religious practices? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I suppose he should be. Uh, he's seen enough in his time. And in terms of my overall, I'm probably going to give it maybe three stars. It's clearly been very well put together for its time and its age. I want to see more Romans... The robe, it didn't feel like it was well explained. <laughs> you mean how, how the magic worked? <laughs> Look, guys, <laughs> what's going on with this robe? Well, I think it's kind of interesting because I suppose like a lot of blockbuster films these days, interestingly, there was a bit of a divide between critics and the audience. So as I mentioned at the beginning, clearly it was well patronized. Lots of people went to see it, you know. And I think that it that has to be partly put down to the fact that it was a new screen technology. And even though television might have been enticing people away from the movies a little bit, there's still no way that a 1950s television could compete with these sort of star-studded epics um, that were so colourful and, you know, all the, all the, you know the, the sound must have been so rich and the colours were so dazzling. I don't think television could really compete with these sorts of things. So I can see why the average person on the street would like them, but critics were a little bit more hesitant about this sort of film. So I did find an article, which we will cite in the show notes, which had some of my favourite ways of summing up the robe. So I, I thought you might enjoy them as well. So, from The New Statesman on the 28th of November, 1953, most of the film I found dull and the rest nauseating. <laughs> Goodness me. Well, that one's not, not enjoying it at all. <laughs> from The Daily Mail on the 20th of November, 1953, fundamentally distasteful. Distasteful. <laughs> <laughs> from The Evening News on the 20th of November, 1953, just money down the drain. <laughs> From the Evening Standard on the 20th of November 1953, boring, heavy-footed and ham-fisted. Oh, look, I think I'd agree with that, to be honest. From the Sunday Express on the 22nd of November, tediously earnest and crushingly sentimental. And finally, my favourite one from the Financial Times, 20th of November 1953, although why the Financial Times are reviewing the robe, I will never know. A long, lacrimose, high-class sleeping draft. <laughs> I spent a lot of money and I napped very well. Thank you. Yeah, yeah. look, and I, I, I hear that. I did find it tough to get through this film. Um, and I will say that there is a moment where I expected the robe to really do itself justice and the robe failed to show up. And that's the moment where Demetrius is clearly at death's door. Oh, true. Yeah. They're at uh, Marcellus's dad's house and the Roman yep. physician is there and he's like, look, there are limits 
to what science can achieve. <laughs> <You know>? <laughs> <laughs> it's like, I can't put the blood back in his body. And yeah. he kind of gives up on it. And then he walks out. Then we have Peter go in. I was like, it's now time for the robe. Surely a healthy application of the robe is going to fix this guy. <laughs> but not only do we not get to see it, but it doesn't seem like the robe was involved. There's some other miracle happening there. And I was like, guys, you really missed a trick. The robe could have done the job and it would have made the magic palpably real for everybody at that point. I know exactly what you mean, but it, since they were already planning the sequel, lest we forget that that's what cures Demetrius's love in Demetrius and the Gladiators, part two of the rope. So I wonder if they knew that that was going to be the plot device for that already. And they don't want to undercut the power of the robe. No, no, you can't, you can't overuse a piece of fabric. And of course, I went into this already knowing that piece of information because we've talked about the sequel before we've talked about the original. So I was kind of like, surely it's robe time. Just a, a wave the robe over him gently. <laughs> Have a sniff. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> use it as a little blanket. And it's like, he's going to come good. Trust me. We know this. Yeah. We know this. But they don't. And I was like, ah. Oh. I wonder if it's because they needed to make use of, you know, Peter a little bit more. St. Peter, they needed his talents on display. I mean, he was definitely that- underutilized in this film, I think. I was like, <laughs> why is he here? <laughs> he's got to get to Rome somehow, I suppose. I mean, the guy who plays him, I mean, come on. He really does look like something out of a Da Vinci painting. I love that guy. Michael Rooney, hats off to you. Definitely has the look. Yeah. Yeah. And I think we mentioned this when we talked about Demetrius and the Gladiators, lest we forget that Christianity became a vehicle for showing your patriotism in this time period in America. And we all know how much Americans love showing their patriotism. And so... It was kind of like one of those things where if the Soviets, your enemy in the Cold War, are godless communists, then Americans are freedom-loving Christians. And so going to church every week was a sign of not only your personal religious faith, but your loyalty to America and your patriotism. So I kind of presume that going to these sorts of films it must have been something that was very much a part of the, you know, the general vibe, particularly in certain areas in America in this time period. Oh, yeah, definitely. And I can imagine there'd be people trying to sell the robe uh, after you left the cinema as well. <laughs> Get your robe <laughs> well, here. <laughs> funny you should mention that because I do have another statistic here from also another article that I will cite in the show notes. That, said, that tells me that between 1950 and 1963, ancient world epics topped the U.S. box office in seven out of the 13 years. Ooh. So I know. So we have Samson and Delilah, Victor Mature, in 1950, David and Bathsheba in 1951, The Robe in 1953. Then there's a little bit of a lull. Is it because of the robe? <laughs> Probably. Not. Everybody's like, I've, I've, I've bought all my tickets. I really can't afford to go to the cinema right now. <laughs> yeah. The Ten Commandments in 1957, Ben Hur in 1960, Spartacus in 1962, and Cleopatra in 1963. And Covardus in 1952 was second, only pipped at the post by the greatest show on earth. Wow. And this is the same. This is the thing. Whilst we might say, okay, so maybe there's a bit of a yearning for Christianity in this time period because of the Cold War, but it's the same way the world over. Now, to be fair, 
the world is more Christian, as in there are more people that would probably identify as Christians in general in this time period as well. Mm. So perhaps not surprising, but they don't have to go and see it to show their loyalty to their governments or whatever they're trying to do. So that's true. Yeah. Yeah. But I thought I, I, I wanted to use this to sum up with. So, okay. The robe. We've done it. I agree with you. It's not my favorite, although I do love Richard Burton and Gene Simmons as actors in this film. And I, I, I do enjoy a bit of Caligula. I actually think I enjoyed Demetrius and the gladiators more, but I thought a good way of summing this up was to take this little snippet from a Sunday times critic called Dillis Powell she wrote something which I really enjoyed, which were the Scripture Prizes, 1932 to 1961. Are you ready for the awards, Dr. G? I'm ready. Okay. The award for most vulgar film goes to The Sign of the Cross. Applause, applause, applause. And that's a film from the 1930s. The award for most nauseating film goes to Quo Vadis. The award for the most exhausting film goes to The Ten Commandments. (laughs) That is exhausting, that's true. (laughs) The award for the most nondescript film goes to The Robe. (laughs) Nondescript. Yeah. (laughs) The award for the most luxurious bloodbaths goes to Samson and Delilah. The award for the most idiotic additional dialogue goes to The Big Fisherman. The award for the most genteel orgy goes to Solomon and Sheba. (laughs) She's just making these categories up. Yeah, no, that's the point. (laughs) And finally... A special chariot race award goes to Ben-Hur. Her, her, her. (laughs) I mean, I'd be very surprised if it went to the fall of the Roman Empire, but it's up there. (laughs) Oh, I think that would definitely be number two. (laughs) Surely. (laughs) Anyway, well, I very much like talking uh, to you about the robe because whilst the robe might not actually be the most flashy of the epics of the Golden Age in the 1950s, It certainly has a lot of the things that I like to talk about, which is the war on television, the studio system at play, modern politics in terms of the foundation of the state of Israel, and of course, American domestic politics, the background of the HUAC hearings and the hunt for reds under the bed. Yes, well, Caligula did have a very red robe and that should be a hint to anybody. Absolutely. (laughs) 